Well, good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. This is a re-recording of the Sunday School lesson since we had a little bit of trouble with our audio system, our recording system. So this is the ninth lesson in quarter two. We're talking today corruption. We've talked about creation, the first C of our seven C's. Now we're talking about corruption. The second C, sin enters the world. This C, corruption, is one of the most important events in the history of the universe. All of the pain, sorrow, and frustration in our world today, from the sniffly nose that keeps you from going to sleep at night, to instances of mass genocide, it's all because of the fall. Because our progenitors, Adam and Eve, about 6,000 years ago, changed their minds about the goodness of God. And they disobeyed him. Not only was the world forever altered, but so was mankind. Man became a doomed race, condemned to eternal punishment under the holy wrath of God, unless a Savior came to transfer men and women out of the line of Adam and into the new holy race of Christ. This then, this sea, this corruption, is critical history for us to understand. But could you imagine if we never knew about it? If God never actually told us? How hopelessly lost would we be? We would move from explanation to explanation to try and discover the terrible reality of our universe and of our human condition and what to do about it, but we would just be deluding ourselves. We would never find the solution. But God in his compassion has given us a trustworthy account of this historical event. And for the rest of the quarter, for about four weeks. We're going to explore the fall, we're going to explore corruption, and we're going to explore its effects, not just on Adam and Eve, but also their immediate children, Cain and Abel, and then of course all of us. Like the first two chapters of Genesis, Genesis 3, our chapter that we're going to be looking at today, is another of the frequently attacked and mutilated chapters of the Bible. It's reinterpreted away from its plain meaning by those wishing to cater to the theories of today's wise men, those skeptics, philosophers, and scientists. But the Bible is nevertheless true. It is profoundly important history that we're discussing today. We must acknowledge it, understand it, and if we do, then we'll be able to act wisely in our world today and respond rightly to the gospel. As we go along, as you're listening to this, you'll probably have many questions in your mind. And I'll try to answer some questions that I anticipate in this lesson, but just a word of warning beforehand, a lot of times the answers to questions about what we read in this chapter is going to be, we don't know. We don't know specifically. But that's okay. It's actually a good opportunity in this lesson for me to emphasize an important principle of hermeneutics, that is, how we interpret the Bible. If there's not enough evidence in a passage to make a conclusion about something, then we shouldn't attempt to make a conclusion. We shouldn't go beyond what's written in the text. We can't say something is true when there's not enough evidence. Now, there's a lot to say about the fall, but our time for this lesson is limited, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to read and examine Genesis 3, the first seven verses, and then we'll zero in on the serpent's strategy used against Eve in those verses, and then We'll take a look at the wider chapter and identify how the gospel 
the gospel of salvation in Christ actually shows up in the midst of this tragedy. Let's start our examination of the fall by reading Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7. Now remember, the previous chapter, Genesis 2, concluded with the creation of man and woman and a description of the first, the first marriage. Remember, the last line of chapter 2 is that they were naked and not ashamed. Now here's verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis. We'll read down to verse 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. All right, as always, when we study a biblical passage, let's start by making some observations. How is, how is the serpent described in this passage? Well, he's more crafty than any other beast of the field. The word crafty means something like intelligently manipulative. The dictionary definition says, clever at achieving one's aims by indirect or deceitful methods. That's how the serpent is described. And note that the serpent is said to be more crafty than any beast of the field. There were three categories of land animals in Genesis chapter 1. We had beasts of the field, we had creeping things, and we had cattle. For some reason, the serpent is included or is compared to the beast of the field likely included in that category. Who is it that the serpent approaches? Well, Eve not Adam. How does the serpent's question to Eve compare to the command that God gave about the tree of knowledge of good and evil earlier in Genesis chapter 2? Well, let me read again the command from God in Genesis 2 verses 16 to 17. There it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now, what was the difference between that and what the serpent, or the question, the first question that the serpent asks Eve? Well, there are three major differences. The serpent adds the word not. The serpent also removes the word freely. God says you may eat freely. Serpent doesn't mention anything about freely. And then the serpent does not mention the specific caveat that God gave in the original command. Now we'll come back to these differences later. Slightly an interpretive question, though, for you can, for as you're listening to consider, for us to consider, what is the serpent's tone as he speaks to Eve? Well, to help us answer that question, let me read a few other translations of the serpent's question in verse 1. The New American Standard, which I read earlier, says, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The ESV says, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The NIV says, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The New King James says this, has God indeed said, you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? If we're trying to describe the serpent's tone, inevitably we'll come up with something like concerned. He's expressing some concern. That's why he's asking this question to Eve, or maybe incredulous. You see the word indeed, actually, really, indeed, in these different, tra- these different translations. There's some incredulity, some hesitancy to believe, or what sounds like hesitancy to believe what God had said. It's some sense of surprise, even shock. Or we could even say the serpent sounds a little bit skeptical. There's a definite tone in the serpent's question. How does the woman's response, the woman repeats God's command, Eve repeats God's command, how does it compare to the original? Well, if you look in the, or if you remember what we read earlier, if you look in the passage, she does repeat God's command and the penalty for sin, but she also adds a phrase. She said that we cannot touch it either. That was not part of God's original directive in Genesis chapter 2. The woman does remark that the penalty is death, and in reply, the serpent says three things. We want to note them. We'll come back to them later. He first says, you surely will not die, and he doesn't just say, no, you won't. He says, you surely will not die. You will surely not die. That's very emphatic. In fact, that's exactly what God had said in the opposite. God said, you will surely die. The serpent says, you will surely not die. That's the first thing. Serpent also says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. Now, when we consider those last two, two ideas, your eyes will be opened, you will become like God, knowing good and evil, we should ask ourselves, we should ask of the, or, yeah, we should ask ourselves, are these two ideas true? Will their eyes be opened? Will they become like God, knowing good and evil? In a way, but not in the way that Eve might think. In verses 6 and 7, we are told that their eyes are opened. And they do gain a sense of good and evil, but they do not become like God. They become more unlike God than they ever were before, because God is completely good. God does understand evil, but he doesn't understand evil the way that Adam and Eve are going to. Because God isn't evil. God doesn't experience evil. Good analogy I heard from John MacArthur in one of his sermons on the passage talks about the difference of knowledge between a doctor and a patient. A doctor can know about cancer, say, or some disease in an intimately, or an intensely um, complete way. But he doesn't know it like a patient who has cancer. A patient who's suffering from cancer. There's a difference in the kind of knowledge. God doesn't know evil experientially. Even though he has complete, um, um, he is completely omniscient, he does not know evil in that sense. He has a separation in his character. So they will become very unlike God in their knowledge. One other thing to note about the serpent's response is the word for. He doesn't just mention three ideas. He connects it with the word for. And you will remember that the word for indicates reasoning. There's a reason for what the serpent just said. And we'll come back to that later. 
When the serpent finishes speaking, the woman makes three observations about the fruit of the tree of knowledge. She notes it's good for food, it's pretty to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise. Perhaps, as you're listening, you may be reminded of a verse in the New Testament that seems to line up with those observations. A verse in the New Testament that describes the different desires of men, the different sinful desires of men. 1 John 2.16 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. A woman makes these observations, she eats the fruit, but where's Adam? Where's Adam in all this? Well, it's actually a little hard to answer. We certainly don't see him involved in the conversation with the serpent. We don't see him doing anything earlier in the passage. But he is there when Eve eats the fruit. It says explicitly, the woman gave some to the man with her. And he eats. Now, Adam appears to take the fruit without a word. But we should notice quickly, down in verse 17, that God specifically rebukes Adam when he's giving the curses, or when God is giving the the punishments, the curses for what they've done, he specifically rebukes Adam for listening to the voice of his wife. God doesn't say, I'm punishing you because you took some of the fruit. He says, you listen to her. You listen to the voice of your wife. That indicates that there was a conversation between them that's not recorded in the Bible. We don't hear any dialogue recorded, but there was some. He eats, they have both eaten, and then their eyes are opened, and they specifically notice that they are naked. Now their response to this realization is to make clothes out of fig leaves. But notice what kind of clothes they're making. They're not making full body suits, they're just making loin coverings. The Hebrew word for loin coverings can also be translated belt, girdle, or apron. So we've made some observations on this, these first seven verses in Genesis 3. Now let's move to the interpretation step. Let's ask some interpretative questions and see if we can arrive at the answers. Skeptics might mock this passage for its description of a talking snake, but who is the serpent really? Well, probably many of you listening to this would say, well, Satan, of course. But how do we know that? How do we know this is really Satan? doesn't call him Satan. Well, we could say that Satan is the opponent that's mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. So if he's the one who's constantly opposing man, constantly trying to hurt man, then it makes sense that he'd be the one in the garden. We see Satan mentioned in 1 Chronicles. We see him mentioned in Job. We see him mentioned in Zechariah. That certainly would be consistent. But Revelation explicitly identifies the serpent as being the devil. Revelation 12.9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. I won't read the rest of the verse, but you get the idea. We know that this is Satan, but where did Satan come from? And why is he seeking to deceive Eve? Well, we all know that Satan is a fallen angel. We would readily say that. Where did angels come from? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us when God created the angels, but it does tell us that he did create them. It clearly identifies them as being created beings. Colossians 1.16 is an example. They are not eternal. They are created. And they were created for specific purposes. They were created to worship God for what he 
did in creation, how he displayed his character in creating and acting in creation, or yeah, creating the world and acting in it, and they also serve God in relation to his creation. They interact with God's creation. Now, because neither of these purposes could be fulfilled prior to God actually creating the world, angels were probably created immediately before or sometime during their creation week. Now, we're not told specifically when they were created, but it makes sense that they would be created during their creation week or perhaps shortly before. Job 38 even says that the sons of God, which is a phrase identifying angels in that context, the sons of God were there singing when God was laying the foundations of the earth in the waters, suggesting that the angels were around on day one, which is probably what that passage is talking about, laying the earth in the waters, or perhaps that's talking about day three. So sometime during the creation week, probably angels were created and Satan was one of those angels. He was a glorious angel, but he rebelled against God and enlisted other angels in his rebellion. Now, we've heard all that before, but where's the biblical support? Where's the biblical support for that notion? Again, we can go back to Revelation. The same chapter I mentioned earlier says this a few verses before. Revelation 12, verses 3 to 4. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. All right, now this chapter in Revelation 12, it identifies itself as being a sign. It's symbolic. But it also tells us that the dragon is Satan. So, what are these stars, the one-third of the stars that Satan cast down to the earth? Well, these are to be interpreted as his heavenly followers, that is, his fellow angels, those who rebelled with him that would also be identified as demons. So that's where we get a direct support for Satan being the leader of an angelic rebellion. Other passages people often go to to explain Satan's background are found in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. In those chapters, God is rebuking earthly rulers. And even though it is about earthly rulers, some interpreters see the descriptions in those passages as being too exalted to simply refer to earthly rulers, that God was actually speaking to Satan through them, to Satan through the rebuke that he was giving them, speaking to Satan or speaking about Satan. For instance, Isaiah 14 describes the morning star from which we get the name Lucifer, describes the morning star being cast down from heaven for trying to make himself like God, for trying to exalt himself like God. And Ezekiel 28 describes someone who is called a cherub being created perfectly beautiful and perfectly blameless until later iniquity was found in him. So those seem to make sense about Satan. But there are problems. There are problems with this interpretation because not everything in the passage makes sense with Satan. The contexts specifically say that these, these rebukes are about earthly rulers. Earthly rulers who are exalted in a certain sense. And Ezekiel 28, whenever it talks about the iniquity for which the cherub is cast out of the garden and cast out from the mountain of God, identifies the sin as trade 
and internal violence. Because of your trade, you have committed eternal violence. How does that make sense with Satan? That certainly makes sense for a ruler of a, of a land that was very involved in trade. Either way, the Bible does identify Satan as the leader of the fallen rebel angels. Now, when did the Satanic Rebellion happen? Again, we are not told specifically, but it's likely shortly before the account that we read earlier between Satan and Eve. Why do I say that? Well, God pronounced all of his creation, including the angels, to be very good at the end of day six. And then, on day seven, he blessed the day, he rested on the day, and he called it a holy day, the Sabbath. So that doesn't make sense for creation to be really good by day six and for to have a holy day on day seven if the angelic rebellion had taken place before that or during that. Likely, or it probably took place afterwards. And the rebellious Satan was cast down to the earth and full of rage against God and all that is good. He immediately set out to deceive and murder mankind. So that leads us to our next question regarding time. When does the encounter with Eve and Satan take place? Again, we're not told. We're not told specifically. But there are clues. There are clues in the Bible that indicate that it was likely very soon after the close of the creation week that Satan tempted Eve. Now, why would we think that? Well, the main reason is because Eve had not yet conceived. Eve had not yet conceived a child with Adam. And this is a big deal, because before the fall, in an unmarred creation, God commanded man and woman to be fruitful and multiply. He commanded them to have children through sex. And for them, creation was yet uncorrupted, meaning that the sexual mechanisms that they had that would bring about conception would be working perfectly. And presumably, the child would be conceived quickly. So with that in mind, it's unlikely that much time had gone by at all since the end of the creation week. She had not yet conceived, even though God had given them the command to have children. They're not going to be disobeying that command. So probably the fall, the interaction with Satan, or with Satan and Eve took place shortly after the creation week. Maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks. It was probably shortly afterwards. There's also the statement from God later on in the passage where it says, we must get move the man out of the garden lest he take hold of the tree of life and live forever. Seems to indicate that he had not yet taken hold of the tree of life, which would be strange if he had been in the garden for a long time. So we have a little bit of understanding of the timing of this event. We noted also that the serpent approached Eve and not Adam. Well, why? Why is that? This is another question that's not actually very easy to answer, and it would take a long time to explain and discuss. Let me just try and summarize a few positions on this question after mentioning a relevant verse from the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2.12-14 says this, But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, as you know, that passage from 1 Timothy is all about the church, specifically men's and women's roles in the church. But the writer, Paul, 
notes differences in the creation and differences in the fall are reasons for why the roles of men and women in the church are different. So what do we do with that? How, how, the, how does the nature of Eve, or what was it about Eve at the fall that made Satan approach her? Well, here's one answer. Answer one, and this is historically a very common answer. Many have said that the reason Satan went after Eve is because she, as a woman, was spiritually weaker. She was spiritually inferior to Adam. She wasn't as strong spiritually, and so that's why the devil went after her. The New Testament does emphasize that husbands ought to have special care over their wives. It even uses the phrase weaker vessel. But that phrase is to be understood in context, because really the New Testament does not know anything about spiritual superiority or inferiority in the church. The phrase about weaker vessels is actually about the special kind of care and value husbands ought to have towards their wives as like a beautiful and a beautiful vase or a beautiful piece of pottery, which would, in those times, would be more fragile. So men, rather husbands, are to have a special care for their wives, but women are not spiritually weaker, not spiritually inferior. Men and women have different roles, but they're all equal in Christ, as Galatians 3, 27 to 28 emphasizes. There's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. No one is superior to the other. No one is inferior to the other. We are all one in Christ. So there's good reason to hesitate with that answer. Here's another answer. Answer two. While not spiritually weaker than Adam, Eve was wired differently. She was mentally different in a way that somehow made her more vulnerable to Satan's temptation. Now this may sound a little bit like the first one, but it has a little bit of nuance to it. Something had to do with Eve's wiring. For example, psychologists say, and there's a certain amount of anecdotal evidence to back this up, that women are generally more relational, emotional, and empathetic than men. But these differences are not imperfections. They're part of the design complementarity of man and woman. There's certain things that men are extremely good at and certain things that women are extremely good at. And when they work together, they, they benefit the most. However, the idea with this line of reasoning would be Satan sought to use woman's natural wiring, woman's natural strength against her by getting her to listen to him and then using her strength as a communicator to ensnare her beloved husband. Now here's your three. Eve's vulnerability didn't have to do with her being a woman, but with her receiving knowledge secondhand. It wasn't really that about her being a woman, it was the fact that she had received the knowledge about God secondhand. We can observe that in Genesis chapter 2, when God gives the command regarding the tree of knowledge and not eating it, the command is only given to Adam. Eve wasn't created yet. When God puts Adam in the garden, he gives him the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge. Now, it's possible that God never gave the command about the tree to Eve. Never directly gave it to Eve. Instead, relying on Adam to lead his wife as, his, as her head when it came to obeying this command. This would also explain why Eve does not quote God's words exactly when questioned by the serpent. 
So the idea with this explanation then is that Satan saw that he could more easily plant doubt in the one who did not hear directly from God. She heard secondhand, he could use that. Furthermore, his temptation, that Satan's temptation, would tempt Eve to pride because she could get her own superior source of knowledge apart from her husband. And she could be the one who instructs him. Rather than submitting to his instruction, she could be the one who teaches him. However, there's good reason to hesitate with this as well because it's possible that Eve did hear the command of God directly. And Genesis simply didn't record it. Adam and Eve apparently spent, or Adam at least, spent time with God during the cool of the day. God walked into the wall in the garden and was looking for Adam. That apparently was their regular thing. And there's no reason that Eve couldn't come along, presumably. So, we don't know. Just because the Bible doesn't say it doesn't, doesn't mean it actually didn't happen. So there are reasons to hesitate with these answers. Also, answer number two. But one thing is clear. And one thing was assuredly part of Satan's scheme. While there may be problems with these, well, I think there are, there are problems with these explanations that I just mentioned, these three explanations about why Satan went after Eve. One thing is for sure, Satan designed to, or Satan planned, he desired to contradict the marriage order that God had designed. One reason, one clear reason he went after Eve is because he wanted to contradict the marriage order that God had designed. And this is why we, in the New Testament, see passages that reassert God's originally created roles for men and women, like in Ephesians 5. This is Satan's viciousness coming out toward God and all the good things that he's made. He wants to upend God's design. He wants to twist it. It's like this would be Satan's thinking. The husband is supposed to be the head, leading and serving his wife. I'll make the husband the follower who lets himself and his wife be swept away by a terrible decision. The wife is supposed to be the helper who submits? I'll make her the leader in sin. And instead of helping her husband, I'll cause her to do him the greatest injury imaginable. This is Satan's ugly, vicious heart. He loves to destroy. He loves to corrupt. He loves to take everything good about God and what he's made, and he likes to twist it. Certainly, this is the case with all his temptations, all his sinfulness. So, bottom line, we know Satan went after Eve to upend God's created order in marriage. Now, let's see if we can more specifically break down Satan's deception, his strategy towards Eve. The first thing the serpent does is that he asks Eve, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, Hebrew word here for any, you should know, literally means the whole. And so it can be translated any, every, or all. And this is the same word, this Hebrew word for any, is the same word that was used by God in Genesis 2.16. God said you can eat freely from any tree. Satan is asking, did God say you could eat, or did God say you could not eat from any tree? Well, because of that word any, we can take the meaning of the serpent's question in Genesis 3.1 in two different ways. The first way would be the following. Eve, did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees of the garden at all? 
In other words, did God totally prohibit you from the trees? Well, the answer to that question is easily no. That's a very unsubtle contradiction of what God said. You only need one word to refute it. But there's another way we can understand Satan's question in Genesis 3, and I think this is what Satan was actually communicating. And that other understanding would be the following. Eve, did God really say you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? It's not that he totally prohibited you, but that there is a prohibition. You can't eat from any tree of the garden that you want. Did God say that? Well, if you think about it, the answer to that question is technically yes. God did say you, you can't have access to every tree. We might want to say no to that question initially because that was the sense that God gave in Genesis chapter 2 because he emphasized the freeness of it, the generosity of it, right? There was just that one tree, verse 17. Don't eat from that tree. It's so deadly, you must not eat of it. Now, if you take out the explanation of Genesis 2.17, as Satan does, then the answer to Satan's question, did God say you shall not eat from every tree, is yes, we were told we, sh we will. We shall not eat from every tree. God emphasized his abundant provision when he gave the command. But Satan's question doesn't mention that abundance at all. Instead, Satan's question focuses on the restriction. Not what God has provided, not his generosity to you, but on the thing he's held back. Satan seeks to eschew Eve's mind from God's generous provision, and instead focus it on the restriction. So he's not saying something that's untrue, but it's a very subtle directioning of Eve's thinking. Also, we noted earlier that the serpent's tone is one of surprise, incredulity, confusion, or shock. And so this tone, combined with a question about God's restriction would indicate to Eve something like, or it says something about God's choice to restrict Adam and Eve, that such a choice doesn't really make sense to the serpent, that it's unexpected. It's not what he would expect from God, especially a God who claims to be good. Did God really say that you're restricted? That's strange. Why would God say that? Why would he restrict you like that? Are you sure you heard him right? Ever so subtly, Satan wants to plant an idea into Eve's mind. And I think it's this. Maybe God's commands aren't good. Maybe his restrictions are actually holding you back from something that's actually really good for you. Maybe something really enjoyable. He's just holding you back from it. Maybe you can't trust God to always have your good in mind. After all, why would he want to restrict you? In response, Eve repeats God's command to the serpent with that strange addition, or touch it. She said, yeah, this is what God said, and we can't even touch it. Now, why does she add that extra part? We don't really know. It could be an extra warning from Adam. It could be, as some have said, that 
Eve was beginning to submit to the doubt that the serpent had suggested into her mind, and that she was making God actually more restrictive than he actually was. But we can't say for sure. What we can say is that something is off. Something is off in Eve. She does reaffirm God's provision, and she also reaffirms God's warning about death. And it's this mention of death that the serpent is going to jump on. So I want you to see the different parts of Satan's strategy. He first wants to get Eve to doubt the goodness of God. Doubt the goodness of God as expressed in his law. He has suggested to Eve that God is, or might be, too restrictive. That his laws are not necessarily good. And that he might not be completely trustworthy. The second thing that the serpent wants to plant doubt in Eve's mind about is God's holiness, God's judgment. First doubt his goodness, now doubt his holiness. Because Satan flatly contradicts God's statement that there shall be consequences for sin. The serpent says, you shall not surely die. Exact phrase from God, minus the word not. God says you'll definitely die. I'm here to tell you, you definitely will not die. There's reason for you to question God's judgment. I can tell you, it's not really going to happen. Not only is God restricting you needlessly, not only is he holding you back from things that might really benefit you or bring you joy, but he's also lying to you about the consequences of pursuing those things. Really, you don't have to worry. You can go after whatever you want. You don't have to fear. God won't judge you. God won't destroy you. Really, the serpent is telling Eve, God is bluffing. He's not as holy as you think he is, or as you've heard he is. He's just trying to scare you. He won't really punish you. But this raises a natural question. But why would God do that? Why would God lie about judgment? Why would he mislead me? Why would he pretend there are consequences for going after sin when there really aren't? Why would God do that? And this is exactly where Satan goes next. He says, I'll tell you why God pretends there is a judgment. Why he's trying to scare you. And this is where we come back to the word for I mentioned earlier. What is the reason for what God or for the for God lying about death? Well, as it says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, that is the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is the final element of Satan's scheme. First, plant doubts about the goodness of God toward even his laws. Second, plant doubt about the judgment of God against sin. And now plant doubt in the core worthiness of God. Plant doubt in the core character and worthiness of God. Because here's his reason. Here's the reason that God lies to you about judgment. It's because he doesn't want you to be like him. He wants all the glory for himself. He has all the pleasures and he wants to keep them for himself. He has all the wisdom. He doesn't want to share any of it with you. That's why he tries to scare you. He doesn't want to let you have what he's already got. Because really, God does whatever he wants, but he doesn't want to let you do whatever you want. Really, 
the serpent is suggesting. God is petty. God is selfish. He is full of envy. He gets happiness out of preventing other people from having happiness. To borrow a phrase from John MacArthur typifying Satan's argument, God is the cosmic killjoy. Gets happiness out of seeing other people unhappy. This fruit could make could make you as wise and knowledgeable as God. But God doesn't want you to have it. It's because he's a cruel miser. He's a tyrant. And the serpent says all this to Eve as if Satan really is the one who has Eve's ultimate good in mind. God doesn't really have your good in mind. He doesn't really care about you. He only cares about himself. He doesn't want you to be like him or have what he has. But I care about you. This is vicious, vicious blasphemy from Satan against God. But you know what the worst part of it is? It's that Satan takes a true aspect of God's character and mutilates it so that God appears as a villain. How so? Well, you know from the rest of the scriptures, God is indeed a jealous God. He will not let anyone be like him or take from the glory he rightly deserves. But not in the sense that Satan means it. It is not because God is evil or ungenerous. It is because God is good. It is because he is generous that he will not let anyone have the glory that he has. We know from the other scriptures that God is too good to let us be satisfied with anything less than his full glory. God demands exclusive worship, but that's because he's so generous, because he's so soul-satisfying. He freely and fully gives himself to all who come to him. He's no miser. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Come to me. I am the fountain of living waters. And he who takes the water that I give, it will become a fountain inside of him. I am the bread of life. He rebukes Israel. Why do you turn to these broken cisterns that don't have any water? When you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. God's jealousy, God's selfishness, you could even say, is actually a most wonderful and beautiful quality because it means that God will always do the greatest good to all his creatures. As 2 Timothy 2.13 says, God cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself. He will never deny his own worthiness to be sought after, worshipped, and enjoyed. So how wicked. How wicked of Satan to take the very source of God's goodness and turn it to what looks like the greatest source of evil. But this is hardly surprising. This is hardly surprising from the one rebel angel who experienced the holy jealousy of God firsthand. The angel who was thrown out of heaven for seeking to glorify himself instead of the one who deserved it, the triune God. And so he wants to lead Eve in the same doubt that he first felt about God. So in total, Satan's strategy, get Eve to doubt the goodness of God in his law, 
get her to doubt the holiness of God and his judgment, and then get her to doubt the worthiness of God and his jealousy. Isn't this the same fundamental strategy that Satan uses with us? Isn't this what we see today? Satan says, Does God really say you can't have that idol you crave? God says you can't give that person who insulted you what he deserves? What? God says you can't have all your sexual fantasies? That you are merely confined to a marriage bed? He says you can't pity yourself? Or be angry when you don't get all those material goods that you deserve? Huh. That's strange. That's strange coming from a God who claims to be good. You know what, Satan says. Go for that idol anyways. God's not going to punish you for it. That whole judgment thing is an illusion. It won't really happen. No one will find out your sin. After all, why would God punish you for giving yourself what you deserve? You're only going after what's good. Why would he punish you for that? You know why he's scaring you, though? Why he's trying to scare you? Because he's jealous. He's jealous of all those who are free. God's kind of messed up inside. He's a control freak. He doesn't seek your good. I seek your good. I want you to be free. I don't want you to have any restrictions. I'll give you everything you want if you just follow after me. Isn't this the voice of Satan today? in our own temptations, and in our society. We see in this chapter, mankind's first woman buys into the deception. She changes her mind. She changes her mind about God, and now with a broken understanding, she steadies the tree. And as she does, she comes to the opposite conclusions from what God had previously imparted. God said the tree is lethal, Eve concludes it's good for food and looks beautiful. God said the wise way is not to eat of that tree's fruit. Eve concludes the tree is actually the way to true wisdom. Eve becomes her own judge of what is right and what is good. She is able, or she makes herself sit in judgment of God. So her decision to eat the fruit then is actually just Outward evidence of a new inward condition. It's not that the fruit is magical, that it's going to magically impart some knowledge of evil. Side note, we don't know what this fruit actually looked like. I know there are lots of images today that depict the tree of knowledge of good and evil as being like an apple, but it probably wasn't. It probably wasn't any fruit. It doesn't look like any fruit that we know today. And it wasn't magical. It was evidence. It was evidence of the inner reality. Eating the fruit was symbolic. Just like when we look at the rest of the Bible, the New Testament says, by your deeds you'll be judged, and yet at the same time it can say, it's out of the heart that you do things, that you speak, and that you act. God looks at your heart. How can he look at both? Which one is it? Well, they're they're intimately connected. What you do is directly a result of what you believe, what you think, what's in your heart. So Eve already doubts God in her heart. And in there, 
she becomes fallen. She becomes broken. She lusts after the fruit, and then she eats it. Direct result of what she was thinking in her heart. But what about Adam? How does he fall? Well, remember, he was with her when she ate. But the New Testament says he was not deceived by the snake. Well, why then does he eat? Well, we know he was at some level deceived. You don't go after sin in any way without being at least a little bit deceived. He wasn't deceived by the snake, but he was deceived. Well, how is he deceived? Again, we don't know. We don't know why he did it. We do know that Eve played a role because, as we saw earlier, God rebukes Adam for listening to his wife. Eve may have told Adam what she had learned from the serpent or what she had learned from studying the fruit. She may have told him how delicious the fruit was. She may have remarked about how she was still alive. Hey, look, there is no judgment after all. I'm still alive and I'm eating it and it tastes really good. Here, have some. Assuredly, Eve entreated her husband to join her. And perhaps Adam idolized Eve over God. Perhaps he was persuaded by the serpent's arguments when he heard them from the mouth of his beautiful love. For whatever reason, though, whatever reason it was, he was deceived. And he ate, and it's only after that they both eat that their eyes are open to what they had done. Now, we might be wondering why, why it took so long, why Eve didn't hear it right away, didn't feel it right away, but I think this is the way it is with sin, right? This is our experience with sin, often. During the moment of anger, during the moment of coveting or lust or whatever other sin it is, we often don't hear truth in our minds. We don't feel the deep pangs of guilt. But wait a short while, just a little time later, and we will feel the darkness of what we've done. That's often the way that sin is. During the moment, it tastes sweet. But afterwards, it tastes very, very bitter. It says their eyes are open and they feel naked, but why do they feel naked? I mean, they were naked the whole time. What does it mean that they feel naked? Well, this has to be connected with the concept we see elsewhere in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that nakedness is connected with the shame of sin. When they feel naked, it's really because they feel the shame, they feel the guilt of sin. It's not that nakedness itself is sinful or shameful. Adam and Eve felt no shame before. The end of chapter 2 told us that specifically when they were naked. Pre-fall, nakedness is no shame. Post-fall, it is a mark of shame. It's a mark of the desolation of sin. And I think that mark, that symbolic mark, comes out of something practical. With Adam and Eve's minds corrupted due to, this, due to the fall, they suddenly were able to imagine all sorts of sin, all sorts of perversions. And each knew that the other was also capable of imagining such perversions. And so they felt vulnerable, and they felt a need to cover up their most intimate and vulnerable parts. And isn't this still true? Isn't this still true for our world today? They made loin coverings. The fact that we wear clothes is a testimony to the fall. Yes, clothes serve additional practical functions for us today, and there are certain groups, certain nudist groups, that have worked hard to overcome the stigma of wickedness that is connected with nakedness. But we do feel the vulnerability, the vulnerability of the wickedness of others and the wickedness of ourselves. We feel the need to cover ourselves because we know that 
men and women are wicked. But it's actually this idea of covering oneself that's going to lead us to the last thing I want to talk about today. How the gospel actually shows up. How the beautiful news of salvation in Jesus shows up at the fall. We're going to talk next week more about the consequences of the fall. But briefly, I want to take a look at the the gospel evident in this passage. Let's read on from verse 8 to 25. Notice especially verses 15 and 25. I'm sorry, 24. Starting in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. We won't spend too much time talking about this passage, but a few observations. As part of God's curse on the serpent, that is, Satan, notice two promises. He first says that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then he says the woman's seed will bruise the serpent's head, crush the serpent's head, literally, and that this seed will only be bruised on the heel. Furthermore, when God expels the couple from the garden, notice he clothes them. He clothes them with animal skins. And these skins had to come from somewhere. It's likely that God killed an animal. He killed an animal to cover them with skins. 
Now these details, they would not be lost on the original audience. And hopefully they're not lost on us because the covering, covering by animal sacrifice was exactly the theme of the Old Testament system. It is a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. Only the blood of a pure sacrifice can cover the shame and guilt of one's sin. You have to be covered. This is substitutionary atonement. That's the concept. The Israelites had many dramatic metaphors of this concept in their sacrificial system, but even the blood of animals would not be a sufficient covering. God designed them as pictures to point to an ultimate sacrifice, an ultimate covering. All men, Adam and Eve included, and you and me, they would need a once and for all sacrifice. And this God provided about 4,000 years later, after the fall, from the seed of the woman. He provided it through the God-man, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. This future seed would succeed in all the ways Adam and Eve had failed, never deviating in trusting the goodness of his Father toward him, even to the point of death. It's actually really interesting. You can see some parallels between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden. But where they failed were our first forefather and foremother failed, our new head, our new father, succeeded. And he also succeeded to the point of death and suffering the full wrath of the father on the cross, the full wrath against sin. And by doing so, he laid the final crushing blow on the head of Satan, the serpent. While the serpent was only only able to give our Christ a temporary wound through death on the cross. Immediately after the first human sinned, God gave this hope. And I just, I am so astounded by this. God gave a gospel promise to Adam and Eve right, right when they were being cursed, right when they were experiencing the judgment of their sin. This passage is sometimes referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first example of the gospel in the Bible. And why did God give it? The same reason he gives it to us now, that we might change our minds, that we might repent and believe. The gospel he gave to them is the same gospel that has been given to men throughout every age of the earth, though now its mystery has been fully revealed because Christ has come. Really, this is what history is all about. It's all about God displaying and being satisfied in his glory through the gospel. Make no mistake, the fall was not a surprise to God. It was actually part of his sovereign plan for obtaining for obtaining his ultimate glory, for displaying rather, displaying his ultimate glory and giving us our ultimate good. 1 Peter 1, 20-21 says, Christ was foreknown as the living sacrifice the living sacrifice for sin before the foundation of the world. He was already foreknown as the Redeemer, as the one who would save us from sin. We too, as believers, were elected before the fall. We were elected in Christ before the world was created. 
We often sing and talk about the depths of the wonders of God in creating us, saving us despite our ugly sin and our rebellion. Yet, without the fall of Adam, how little we would know about the true depths of the glory of God. Isn't that that amazing and yet wondrous? Augustine, the famed 4th century church father, he coined a strange yet accurate term when speaking of the fall of man, Felix Culpa, which means happy fall, lucky fall. This is not to say that everything that resulted from the fall is happy or without pain, but that ultimately the fall of Adam was good for those who are called in Christ Jesus, those who are elected according to God's purpose. This is what Romans 8.28 says, right? It has to be true, and it's most evidently true with the fall. God was going to see to it that his full glory, his full soul-satisfying glory was on display in Jesus Christ. Man would fall, but God would display his glory in saving that fallen man, bringing him to himself, bringing him and all, all men and women who were called in Christ into the church as his bride forever. This is our life. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow after Christ. It's to behold and to be satisfied with God's glory. And this is what it will be for eternity. It is reveling in the God who displays himself through the gospel, who displays himself through Christ. There's so much more we could say about this account in Genesis 3, but we'll stop here for now. If you have some questions, please feel free to send me an email or ask me in church. Don't forget that we have a new memory verse going forward. These next five weeks, we'll be memorizing the command of God expressed in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. I'll read that as we close. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. There it is. Not as much time to memorize it, but we talked about it extensively today, so hopefully it'll be a little bit easier. The verses are somewhat famous. Thank you for listening. Look forward to seeing you in church again sometime soon. Thank you.